3: Memories are subjective. We all see the same sights, we all hear the same sounds, and we all smell the same smells. But burdened by a limited capacity, our minds only remember the smallest of fragments, all of which are distorted by time, bias, emotion and trauma. The simplest of details may imperceptibly change, Colours, shapes, sizes, names, dates, times, and even locations. To the point where two people, sitting side by side, in the same room, at the same time, may see the same event in a radically different way, as their brains edit that brief moment to suit their own perspective. Unconsciously, we all do it. And yet, we all believe that our memories are real. In 1943, just two miles west, and less than one year after the horror of the Blackout Ripper, a second serial sexual sadist stalked the bomb-damaged streets of London. Strangely, they were both in uniforms. They both struck during the blackout, and they both appeared as kind, pleasant and caring. But unlike the Blackout Ripper, whose insatiable lust for sex and death left four women dead and two lucky to be alive. This serial killer was older, wiser and calmer. Seen as an upstanding pillar of society, a happily married man and a decorated war hero who lived locally at 10 Wellington Place. Although he was known as Mr. Christie, to those he liked, He preferred they call him Reg. And yet, in a reign of terror, which would last not a few days, but a whole decade, eight women would disappear, one man would be executed, and no one would suspect him. You may think you know this story, as many variations of it have been told. But with much of the evidence destroyed there is no definitive account of what happened. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspective. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile and I present to you part one of the full, true and untold story of the other side of 10 Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing at 110A Ladbroke Grove, at the farthest fringes of London's West End. Three miles west of Soho, one mile north of Hyde Park, and within spitting distance of Portobello Road, Notting Hill, and that infamous blue front door, owned by the film's writer, who subsequently, following the film's success, sold the house for oodles of cash. Clever man. Now called The Flowered Corner, 110A Ladbroke Grove is a four-storey brown brick Victorian terraced house nestled on the northeast corner of the crossroads of Lancaster Road and Ladbroke Grove. With three flats above, the ground floor is a floristry shop a single bright spot on a dirty dusty street, where the sweet smell of nectar is strangled by the greasy stench of chicken shops, the soothing colours of tulips are smothered by the choking fumes of trucks, buses and tube trains, and the harmonious tranquillity of fresh pansies was once, as witnessed by myself, sullied by a rather displeased youth cussing from a beaten up banger. With his music blaring, no lights on, a no windscreen, who was smoking a spliff, wearing a fuck the police T-shirt, and bemoaning two straight-faced coppers by complaining, "Why are you police always hassling me?" Back in the 1940s, 110A Ladbroke Grove was known as David Griffin's refreshment room, a simple cafe serving standard British staples like tea, coffee, toast, and fry-ups for a reasonable price in a poverty-stricken area. And yet, it was here, on the 21st of August, 1943, that a 21-year-old girl called Ruth First, who had already escaped her certain death, would meet her new murderer. Ruth Marguerite Christina I was born on the 2nd of August 1922, the second of three children to Ludwig, an Austrian landscape painter, and Frederica, a Jewish housewife, with an older brother, Gottfried, and a younger brother, Gabriel. Raised in the middle-class affluence of Zurich, Switzerland's largest city, Ruth's upbringing was peaceful, happy, and joyous. And being a well-educated girl from a very liberal and unpolitical family, she embraced her life, her rights and her freedom. Eager to become a nurse, although a little bit shy, Ruth was always studious, intelligent and patient. Having inherited her father's slim, awkward frame, being a few inches taller than most girls, she always stood out. And as a fastidiously neat girl, with pale but easily flushed skin, brown but eternally sad eyes, and a neat bob of dark straight hair, a colouring passed down from her mother's Hungarian ancestry. Although Ruth looked typically Jewish, she wasn't. Plagued with minor complaints from birth, like a hereditary blood disorder which often left her weak, buckled knees, which kept her excluded from sports, and terrible teeth which left her in chronic pain. As a beloved girl from a well-to-do family, able to afford doctors, medicine, and fortuitously a metal crown fitted to her upper right molar, life could have been a lot worse. In need of fresh air, good light and striking landscapes to paint, Her father Ludwig moved the family to a spacious villa on the edge of a forest in the picturesque Austrian spa town of Bad Voslau, famed for its lush vineyards and rolling hills, 23 miles southwest of his hometown of Vienna. Being surrounded by her family, Ruth was happy, safe and loved. And although this affluent and bustling market town was home to just over 9,000 people. By the late 1930s, many homes would become vacant, many people would vanish, and for the first time in its history, the population of Bad Voslau would rapidly shrink. On the 15th of September, 1935, with the National Socialist German Workers' Party having risen to power, fueled by rabid anti-Semitism, the Reichstag established the Nuremberg Laws. Its purpose? To create an Aryan state and eradicate anyone who wasn't pure blood, whether black, gay, romani, disabled or Jewish. The Nazis classified a Jew as anyone who practised Judaism, identified as Jewish, had married a Jew, and regardless of whether they were a practising Roman Catholic, as many German Jews had been since the 19th century, if any person had traceable Jewish ancestry, they were subject to the Nuremberg Laws and regarded as a Mischling or half-blood. For the next two years, With all five members of the first family being Mischlings, they were all denied any rights, freedoms, and being treated as an Untermensch, German for subhuman, Ruth and her family were forced to undertake menial and demeaning jobs, one of which included scrubbing road surfaces with acid, which left Ruth's palms badly scarred forever. On the 12th of March 1938, as the Nazis annexed Austria, all Jewish-owned properties were seized, all personal belongings were sold, and having been forcibly separated, the fate of the first family was unknown. Some hid, others fled, and whereas the rest were rounded up and transported to uncertain fates. For the first time ever, Ruth was alone, homeless and scared. She was just 16 years old. From the 1st of October 1938, for eight months, Ruth hid in the basement room at Nummer zwei in Nazi-controlled Vienna, never knowing if her family were alive or dead. With fate smiling upon her, Ruth was issued with a passport, and on the 8th of June 1939, just three months before the start of World War II, being hungry and exhausted, Ruth fled to England. And yet, having escaped the horrors of the Nazi regime, a life of poverty, persecution, and her certain execution, it was here. In the safety of West London, that Ruth first would end up dead. She was Austrian, I believe, a nice girl, plain but sad-looking. I met her in the summer of 43, in a cafe in Labregourve. Got herself into a dreadful mess, she had. Awful. So I gave her a few shillings, you know, to help her along. That's all. It seemed like the right thing to do. And that consequently,
1: this country is at war with Germany.
3: On the 1st of September 1939, Britain declared war on Germany. A brutal six-year conflict which left homes decimated, families displaced, countless casualties maimed, crippled and traumatised. And by the end of it all, at least 11 million people would be dead. One of whom was Ruth. Having just turned 17, Ruth was still a child. An impressionable young girl from a foreign land, who was scared and lost in a big strange city, with a limited grasp of English, Apache education, weak legs, bad blood and sore teeth, with no skills, no friends and no family. And although she was thankful to be safe, missing her mother's hug and her father's love, she was alive, but also so alone. The last four years of her life were solitary and chaotic. And as much as she strived, she struggled. Initially, she lived with her guarantor, Miss Edith Bessie Willis, in a delightful white terraced cottage at 92 Oakwood Road, in the very Jewish northwest London neighbourhood of Golders Green. But with Edith being a prim and proper lady, and Ruth being a distraught teenager, with scars on her hands, an emptiness in her heart, and unimaginable horrors still plaguing her mind, they never got on. Still seeking to fulfil her dreams, Ruth enrolled as a student nurse at St. Gabriel's Home in the seaside town of Westgate-on-Sea, and upon graduation, with a bright career in her sights, Ruth found work at the Santa Claus Children's Home in Highgate, and life had hope. And then, as an Austrian exile who had legally entered England, even though she was just a young girl, being unsure whether she was a Nazi sympathiser, Ruth's newly adopted country had her transferred to the Hutchinson internment camp in Douglas, a cold, barren, and inescapable prison on the remote Isle of Man in the middle of the Irish Sea surrounded by bare walls, locked doors and barbed wire. Six months later, having been deemed not a threat by the British government, Ruth regained her freedom. But with her job gone, her reputation ruined and her life in tatters. With German bombers obliterating every city, Ruth was evacuated from London and once again uprooted to the windswept wilds of Ellswick in Lancashire, where she knew no one. And still, her life would only get worse. Half a year of enforced captivity had taken its toll, and whereas once this sweet, polite and joyous girl had been replaced by a fiery, moody mess, with tatty clothes, sullen eyes and unwashed skin... Looking like a ragged orphan, which she knew she most likely was, Ruth had become trapped in a mental fog. With a doctor diagnosing her as severely depressed, although the capital wasn't safe, for the sake of her mental well-being, Ruth was moved back to the familiarity of London. London was a city in ruins. After eight months of sustained aerial bombardment, having failed to pummel the proud populace into submission, with the Luftwaffe being unrelenting, the bombings continued. An estimated 43,000 civilians would die during the air raids. As with a daily risk of being killed by an incendiary bomb, a doodlebug or a V1 rocket, To many Londoners, death was a part of life. Houses would vanish overnight, sometimes terraces, and even whole streets. And with its occupants being obliterated by blast waves or incinerated by fire, the only evidence that a family ever existed was when the special constables pulled bodies from the debris, sometimes alive, sometimes dead, Sometimes Sometimes whole, whole, injured, injured. or disfigured. And And yet sometimes, sometimes, all all that was was left was was a foot, foot, a hand, or a head. Nasty business it was. But in wartime, it wasn't unheard of for someone to simply vanish. Being eager to rebuild a small semblance of life... Having endured rationing, blackouts, and the limitations of her refugee status, Ruth ploughed on, hoping to make something of herself, and God rest them, her parents proud. In December 1941, whilst living in a small but pleasant lodging, studying for her return to nursing, and working as a waitress at the exclusive Mayfair Hotel in Stratton Street, W1, just shy of Piccadilly Circus. Ruth met and fell in love with a Greek Cypriot waiter called Anastasio Isidorin. A few months later, being rosier about the cheeks, full around the hips and with a noticeable bump, Ruth discovered that she was about to become a mum. And with the little miracle of a baby girl, Blossoming in her belly, having prayed nightly to the Lord and him finally hearing her cries, he blessed her with one more miracle. Frederica and Ludwig I, her mother and father, weren't dead. Having fled the horrors of the Nazi regime and boarded a boat, her parents were alive, well and living in the safety of East 57th Street in New York City, where they hoped Ruth would join them. But being heavily pregnant, desperately broke, and very recently single, in her state, Ruth knew that she couldn't. And as fate would have it, she wouldn't. As a young girl with weak legs, bad blood, poor teeth and frequent bouts of depression, life was hard. As an unskilled and partially educated female in the 1940s, life was harder. As a wartime refugee of Austrian-Jewish parentage living in London, life was even harder, but also being an unmarried Expectant mother of no fixed abode, with no job, money or immediate family, life was impossible. So on the 9th of October 1942, in the West End Lane, home for unmarried mothers in Hampstead, being alone, scared and desperate, Ruth gave birth to a baby girl, who she named Christina. Moments later, her baby was taken away. She never saw her again. From the end of 1942 to the middle of 1943, having moved from job to job, lodging to lodging, leaving a trail of unpaid bills, as she slowly sunk back into depression, Ruth's life returned to chaos. On the 25th of May 1943, Frederica received the last letter that Ruth would ever write. In it, she stated that she was working the night shift in a local munitions factory and reassured her mother that she was fine, well, and she sent her love. On the 29th of June 1943, Ruth quit her job as a machinist at John Balding and Sons. A munitions factory at the back of Bond Street station. And although she was always tired, tardy, and sickly, barely working 20 hours of her 40 hour week, her co workers believed that once again she was pregnant. On Saturday, the 21st of August 1943, at little after lunchtime, Ruth was seen by her landlady. Julie Theresa Walker leaving her flat at 41 Oxford Gardens as she walked one road south towards Ladbroke Grove Tube Station wearing a very distinctive fake leopard skin coat. That was the last confirmed sighting of Ruth First. Believing she'd absconded without paying her rent, her landlady reported her missing ten days later. As one of many missing refugees, her details appeared in the police gazette, but nobody searched for her. And as one of thousands of innocent civilians believed to have been killed during the aerial bombardment, the mysteries surrounding her death wouldn't be investigated until a decade later. She was Austrian, I believe. A nice girl. Plain, but sad-looking. But in wartime, it wasn't unheard of for someone to simply vanish. After this moment, only one person witnessed her alive. A special constable, working out of the Harrow Road police station who'd been commended twice by the police commissioner, and as a local man who was moral, teetotal and charitable, was widely regarded as an upstanding pillar of society, a happily married man and a decorated war hero. The special constable's name was John Reginald Halliday Christie, known as Mr Christie. But I prefer it if you call me Reg. It was Saturday lunchtime. As per usual, although small and snug, David Griffin's refreshment room at 110A Ladbroke Grove was busy. In the corner, Ruth and Reg sat side by side, as they had done several times before. Ruth found it difficult to make friends. But with Reg being so approachable, kind and caring, even though he and his wife Ethel had no children of their own, the word which best described him was fatherly. As a slightly built man, twice her age but the same height and weight as Ruth, Reg seemed like a harmless sort. And being almost totally bald, except for a thin crown of hair above his ears, wearing thick-lensed horn-rimmed spectacles which magnified his soft brown eyes, A set of false teeth, which being too big, sometimes slipped when he spoke. And talking in a barely audible whisper, having been injured in a mustard gas attack, whilst bravely serving his country during the Great War. Although he looked a little odd, she could see that Reg was a sweet and caring man, who wouldn't harm a fly. Ruth and Reg sat together, him having brought her a tea and toast as he listened to her woes, his hand tenderly touching hers. But it wasn't hard and coarse, but a little limp and damp. Got herself into a dreadful mess she had. Awful. Being 10 days away from failing to pay her rent, once again, Ruth risked eviction. Being unemployed, she couldn't afford a checkup on her weak legs, her bad blood, her chronic teeth, or the new baby, which was probably on the way. And as a deeply moral man, who never used prostitutes myself, he'd often turn a blind eye to a good woman who'd fallen on hard times and had struggled to make ends meet. So I gave her a few shillings, you know, to help her along. That's all. It seemed like the right thing to do. Having visited his home twice before, and kept this special constable company on his beat. On Tuesday, the 24th of August 1943, Ruth entered Rillington Place. A grey, featureless dead end, with ten three story Victorian terraced houses on both sides, with no trees, plants, or front gardens. And like it was cutting the street dead in its tracks, stood a ten foot high brick wall behind which, tube trains thundered by. Keen to collect those ten shillings, Ruth knocked on the black wooden door of 10 Rillington Place. First to greet her was Judy, Reggie's overexcitable brown mongrel. But once again, there was no sign of his wife Ethel, who was up north visiting her family in Halifax. The hallway was thin, drab and dark. To the left was a set of stairs which led up to the other tenants' flats. And to the right was the ground floor flat which belonged to the Christie's. With a front room, a bedroom and a kitchen. With a neat little garden and a communal wash house and lavatory out back. So with tea brewing on the hob, Reg ushered Ruth along the thin hallway into the kitchen. Having no central heating, limited electricity, and illuminated by Victorian gaslights, which bathed the pokey kitchen in a flickering yellow glow, as Reg perched awkwardly in front of the alcove on a small round stool, Ruth leaned back in his one good seat. By good, it was really just a wooden deck chair draped in a grey blanket and held together by what should have been six lengths of rope. But as she sat there, supping a nice cuppa and getting toasty in front of the wood-burning range, Ruth was cosy. For a while they chatted, as the older man imparted his wisdom, knowledge and fatherly advice to the inexperienced girl. But it was as she stared into his soft brown eyes, longing for love and missing a man's touch, that being overcome with lust, Ruth started to undress. She was madly in love with me. Christie was a happily married man. He didn't do this sort of thing. But as she slowly undid the buttons on her fake leopard skin coat, revealing a young slim body with a full heaving bust. Being a woman with strong sexual urges, Ruth led Reg into the bedroom. She were completely naked, lying on my bed, wanting me to have intercourse with her. And as much as Reg reminded her that he was married, she wanted us three to team up, to go away somewhere together. I wouldn't do that. But not wishing to offend her, I got on the bed and had sex with her. Of the many statements he gave, all are inconsistent. Sometimes he'd be pedantic about the smallest and most insignificant details. I don't recall. And yet, he'd be impossibly vague about whole events. I can't be certain. It were a while ago, you know. But when asked, where, when, when? how and why he murdered Ruth first, he would simply state, I don't recall. Except to say, it was while I was having intercourse with her. I strangled her with a piece of rope. As the full weight of Reggie's spindly naked body bared down upon her, his putty white legs pressed tightly around her skinny thighs, trapping her legs. Being gripped in panic, fear, and unable to breathe, let alone scream, the more her trembling hands grasped at the taut rope, which slowly crushed her throat, the tighter he pulled it. As her soft youthful skin turned a mottled shade of puce, as the blood vessels in her face swelled and ruptured. As the tightening ligature forced her tongue to jut out of her mouth, like it was trying to escape her silently screaming face. As being in uncontrollable terror, her shaking body expelled its last splash of urine and feces. And as the capillaries in the whites of her eyes began to burst so they appeared almost black, The last thing that Ruth saw wasn't the sweet smile of her baby daughter, the peaceful fields of her hometown of Bad Voslau, or Ludwig and Frederica first, her beloved parents, but the terrifying grimace of Reg Christie. As in his hands, he gripped both ends of the straining rope until her life drained away. There she lay, dead. She looked more beautiful in death than in life. I remember. I gazed down at the still form of my first victim and experienced a strange, peaceful thrill. but his thrill was to be short-lived. Receiving a telegram that his wife would be home that evening, Reg dragged the naked corpse from the bedroom, along the communal corridor and into his front room, and under a large rug where, with a few floorboards loose after a plumber had repaired a leaky pipe, he hid Ruth's body. Ethel arrived home that night, and with fresh sheets on the bed, her brother Henry fast asleep just a few feet away, Reg having burned the clothes in a dustbin and buried the body in the back garden. She was none the wiser, of the sex, the death, the body, or her husband, the murderer. And although John Reginald Halliday Christie made several vague statements When asked in court, Mr. Christie, was this the first person you had killed? He would reply, I think so. I don't recall. 21-year-old Ruth Marguerite Christina First was just a girl with weak legs, bad blood and painful teeth, who somehow had escaped persecution, anti-Semitism and her extermination in a concentration camp at the hands of the Nazis. She'd endured hardship, poverty, hunger, bombings, imprisonment, abandonment, and the loss of her family, her home, her baby, and finally, her life. But being listed as only missing, not dead, and certainly not murdered, Ruth first would become just one of thousands of innocent civilians, believed to have been killed in the wartime bombing raids. She was Austrian I believe, a nice girl, plain but sad looking. But in wartime, it wasn't unheard of for someone to simply vanish. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you enjoyed part one, part two of The Other Side of 10 Rillington Place continues next Thursday. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are literally saving my life by financially keeping Murder Mile afloat, with their generous donations, which I definitely don't spend on cake. This week's heroes are Alex Stone and Harriet Oliver. Thank you guys. May your world be full of Belgian buns, Battenbergs and fondant fancies. Which for me, that's as good as heaven. Murdermar was researched, written and performed by myself. And with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening and sleep well.
1: United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: Oh. Okay. Oops. Bollocks. Okay. Hello. Wait. Right. Hello everyone, welcome to Extra Mile, it's Michael, hello, how are you, you good, I'm good, that's good, that is good, 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 Extra Mile time, how are we all, Uh, how did you enjoy that, was that good, that was uh, part one of Ten Rillington, the other side of Ten Rillington place, the the story of, uh, well... In my version, the vic- the story of the victims of John Reginald Halliday Christie. Uh, you may know that story, you may not know that story. Uh, even if you do know that story, it doesn't make any difference because this is the other version of it. This is the side that no one tells. Anyway, uh, as I always say every week, if you're uh, new to um, this podcast, this is Extra Mile. This is the extra bit at the end where I discuss a lot of things that either didn't go into the episode or things, you know, extra context and stuff like that it's not compulsory you don't have to hang around if you don't want to but you can if you want to people seem to enjoy it i enjoy it as well cuz it's it's relaxing after the the fir- that first bit takes up almost a whole week to do not including researching this bit takes as long oh, it's just all it takes is as long as it takes me to record it cuz i don't edit it and it's, it's refreshing to have that. So, uh, extra mile. Just so you know, I haven't got a cake in front of me this week. I know, shocking. I'm literally about to move move the boat somewhere else, which means I'm moving away from the nice little Jewish neighbourhood that I'm in, which has a really, really nice bakery and does the really, really big Belgian buns. Mmm, Belgian buns very nice. So, yeah, I'm going to... Oh, I wonder if I've got time to go and get one before I disappear. I think I might. I think I might have enough time. So... it's always time for cake isn't there so uh yes so no battenberg today i'm about to disappear i've got a coffee on the go here it's still warm that's good so let's tuck into this episode part one of 10 Willington place i hope you enjoyed it i think i did oh before we start a quick thank you to kim nixon kim sent me a big box of goodies which i mentioned last week but i hadn't received it by the time i'd recorded that because obviously these episodes are recorded about two weeks in advance uh so thank you kim for the goodies they are now all gone all of the cakes are gone (laughs) i've picked out even the battenberg which was in the special battenberg life vest i know it it arrived in a really really nice little it was like a life vest you could you could throw it into the water and it survived so it was yeah so i've I've still got the life vest but all the cakes have gone uh thank you to everyone who has sent me treats i've got a lot fatter uh and a lot more wibbly So, let's crack on. Um, Oh, just to say before we start, you'd notice in there I mentioned that there was a little voice cameo. Uh, A a friend of mine, Police Constable Arsenal Guinness, the original Police Constable Arsenal Guinness, uh, makes a little voice cameo in there at the start. uh, Around the funny bit of the story, if you go back, you can hear him there. Um, If you fancy a voice cameo in a Murder Mile episode, go to my eShop. Um it's available on there there's mugs on there and ebooks and stuff you can buy but you can also if if someone really loves murder mile god knows who uh, you can actually you can buy a little voice cameo I'll give you a little line to say it won't be a big starring role so you won't be going oh I am playing the killer you'll be, it'll be like a background artiste in the background it'll be something that you will notice and you can point out to your friends and then you'll get your name at the end of the show as um as the voice cameo but you can buy that via my e-shop if you fancy it and buying that helps uh keep murder mile afloat as well so this is going to be a relatively short extra mile uh only because i've packed a lot into that episode Uh, i was unsure how much i would be able to get into it but i really did pack in a lot and also because this is going to be like an eight parter uh eight or nine parter i still haven't decided whether i'm doing the ninth episode i might or might not but Unlike Blackout Ripper, which I really didn't plan, I can't, that was kind of freeform, that's why it was started off as a four-parter, then became a five and a six, then a ten, then an eight. This is definitely an eight, might be a nine if I decide to do the extra episode at the end, I haven't decided yet. But I don't want to give too much away, so I'm going to keep these, this extra mile kind of quite slight, really. Uh... Uh, what am I? What am I thinking about? What am I thinking about? My brain is gone. Okay, so uh, how did I research this? So, um, obviously, you might know about this case. You might not. This is the story of John Reginald Halliday Christie. Uh, obviously, one of my favourite films in the world is is Ten Rillington Place with. Um, Richard Attenborough as John Reginald Christie. It was fantastic. John Hurt's in it as well. Really good film. Uh, Tim Roth did a version on the BBC with... uh, What's her name? Oh, she's really good. And she played Ethel Christie. Uh, Anyway, you can check that out. That's online. Even if you're in America. I think it was on BBC America as well. And it was just called Rillington Place. Um, There's loads of books about John Reginald Christie. But what I wanted to do was to... Same with the Blackout Ripper, there was very little little written about the victims themselves. Again, in all of these cases, the victims are kind of footnotes in history. They're kind of ignored. So same as with the Blackout Ripper, I wanted to focus just on um, the victims and where they came from and their life story and then we slowly get... Uh, and then, obviously, when they get murdered, then you're kind of like, oh, I really feel sorry for them. Whereas, do you know, if you just have a story about a killer and he just, he finds someone and he cuts their head off, who cares? Do you know, Who cares about the person he's cut their head off? Whereas if you really care about them, do you know, even if they're only just like stabbed in the heart and they slowly die, you just go, you feel sorry for them. And, you know, because you miss them already. That's what I try to do with these stories is make you love and appreciate these people, then miss them. But unlike the Blackout Ripper story, because everyone knows that this is John Reginald Christie, what I wanted to do was instead of with the Blackout Ripper story where I kind of led you down a path and like he kind of peeps at he appears in episode one and two and three and four, but you only kind of slightly see him and then he really appears in five and then you learn about his life because we already know this is about John Reginald Christie. And it's not difficult to just go online and go type in 10 villainton Place. It'll pop up with a picture of John Reginald Christie outside his house and his name. So I just thought, let's not monkey around with this. We all know it's John Reginald Christie who's the killer. But let me introduce him slowly through the lives of the victims. So that's what I'm going to do with this. But I'm doing this in a very different way to how I did Blackout Ripper. But also how everyone else tells a story as well. So... Um, Obviously for this, uh, obviously I ignored books. Uh, I ignored the TV series. I have seen all the TV series and the films, and uh, I've read most of the books, but I've ignored all those because I wanted to go back to Source, which I love doing because I, I hate getting other people's bias when you read the books. Uh, so I sat down, I pulled out all of the John Reginald Halliday Christie files from the National Archives, uh, about 30 box files. In total, there's probably about 4,000 pages of transcript. Uh, obviously, I didn't have the luxury of having a year to research it like I did with the Blackout Ripper. I had about six weeks. So this was about 12 hours a day, every day, literally just going through, going through every case file. And because and it's in no real discernible order, you go through it and you're not too sure what's, what's important. And at that point, I still didn't know what the story was. I didn't know what story I wanted to tell, but I knew it was the victim's story. I, but I didn't know how to tell John Reginald Christie's story. Because it's so famous, it's so well known. So I was going through all the box files and uh, it was interesting. Some, sometimes I'd find a detail and then I'd go, oh, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I like that. And then I'd go, oh, I read something about that somewhere else. And then I'd have to go, oh, shit, what file was it in? And I'd have to reorder the files and then sit there with files on my desk and think, where in this file do I remember where that one person said about? Christie doing this or the victim. Oh god. So yeah, it took ages. But so I pieced them all together. And uh weirdly, by going through all of the court transcripts, there's a lot of court transcripts. There's all of the original witness testimony was there, all the people who knew all the victims, all the people. Um that was fascinating. But what it did also was it gave me a different perspective on John Reginald Christie. What it Led me into was kind of. I knew that he'd be quite an arrogant man, and he would deny stuff. But I had no idea because because they don't talk about this in any of the films or the books or most most things like this. They don't talk about the fact that he's very deluded. He lives in his own little world, and he lives in this this fantasy world where there's a real perspective where all of these women love him. He's he's adorable. It's like they they can't wait to have sex with him, and he he doesn't see the truth at all so that's what as soon as I, I I was researching I thought that's interesting I want to try and get across the idea of from the victim's perspective we put in as much truth as possible so I've weeded out a lot of the crap about the victims which isn't truth but with John Reginald Christie I've used I've tried to use a lot of his uh his real words where possible, obviously I've had to dramatise some of these as well, because he doesn't write, he doesn't talk in, in clear sentences. Uh, but what I've tried to do is, is get as much of his perspective and his fantasy in there as well, and we try and merge the two worlds together. So really, like I say at the start, start of this, this is really about, I'm going to give you all, all of the evidence, but you need to work out what's real and what's fake, what's fantasy, what exists, what doesn't exist. And for me, it was fascinating going through this. I, knew, I thought I knew this case really well, and I, I really didn't. The more I dug deeper into it, the more I was like, learning about Christie and his, his the way his brain works is just fascinating. It really was. Really, I was just going to do a whole, a whole uh, uh, episode, really, about going back and going, flashing back and forth between periods in his past about how they connect to the murders. And I'm, I'm doing a little bit of that, but really this is about his his mental imbalance, his instability. Um, so was it. I, I, obviously uh, I'd researched it that way. I did all the research. It took ages. I put all the research together, but I had no idea how to write it. So this, as always, episode one is the real, real tough one because I've no idea how to write it. I don't just sit down and go, right, let's write it. I sit down and go, right, I'm telling the victim's story, but I couldn't work out how to get Christy in there. I couldn't work out how to blend Christie's, the truth, and Christie's fantasy together because there's big jumping off points. Like, we've got the truth about Ruth's life, and then he meets her in David Griffin's refreshment room. He may not have met her that day. He may not have met her in David Griffin's refreshment room. He may have met her somewhere else. He may not have met her at all. He says that he met her. She was working as a prostitute in the local area. And he used to get to know a lot of prostitutes quite well. But there's no real evidence there that she was a prostitute at all. She could have been. There was a lot of ladies around the time who were supplementing their income through prostitution whilst working other jobs and she wasn't working so it could be but was she we don't know so how much of this is fantasy we really don't know um but that's what i wanted to get across really was like like with the idea that um i love the fact that christy was like she she was so in love with me and she wanted me to go to bed and do you know have a three-way with me wife and it's like never happened it almost certainly never happened or if she was a prostitute and she had been to his house a couple of times she could have gone to his house as a prostitute and he paid her those 10 shillings for sex but in his in his mind afterwards he sees it as she was so in love with me it's like i i I love that i love that real difference between truth and fantasy so we're going to have a lot of fun with that i'm going to try and piece together as much facts as i can about Christie's fantasy, and because there, there there is evidence there, but trying. So I'll show you other stories as we go along. So we will return to this kind of story again. Um, there's another one of the murders coming up that I was fascinated by. I thought I knew everything about this, but but I'm not going to go into it too much. It's it's one of the the uh, middle episodes, but. When they show it in films and TV series and in books and stuff like that, they just focus on the. It's, it's very straight and down the line and they show you how they reckon the murder has happened. But Christie's fantasy of the murder, of how he sees it happened, is more interesting than anything else. And I don't know why they always ignore that. Christie's. It shows Christie's mental inability, his lack of capacity. Uh, so, yeah, no. So, we're going to have some fun with this. Um, and I've also enjoyed doing the Christie voice as well. She was Austrian, I believe. <laughs> it's good fun. It's it's. I uh, it's. We don't really have any recordings of Christie's uh, voice itself, but um, no, I'm not going to tell you about it because that will appear in a later episode, right? See it's so much, I can't tell you. Uh, so uh, there wasn't very much about Ruth in the files, which was really annoying. But as you can kind of appreciate, she very much kept herself to herself. She was a refugee. She was a young girl. Her parents weren't here. Uh, she was quite secretive and shy. And most of the people who knew her were only interviewed about her life a decade after her death. Because obviously that's only the point when they, when they were like... But prior to that, she was like, they were like, she was probably killed in a bombing. So it was like, okay, Mark her up as killed in a bombing, or missing. But when they knew about Christie and they found... Whew, I'm not saying anymore. Uh, <laughs> obviously, ten years later, um, they had to attribute it as a murder... Uh so therefore they started interviewing people about her life but obviously things had changed like uh Teresa her landlady died in 1950 so she was dead by that point many of the people who knew her died in the war or had moved on or people who were in David Griffin's refreshment room that day how are they going to remember someone who was in a cafe on a day that just merges into all the others a decade prior so you know um Uh, so I did what I always did I went through all the files and I really meticulously went through every single statement to find out just the tiniest details about her life and then I just pieced them all together it's it's there's unfortunately as with I know you, you probably think oh Michael probably opens up a file and he sees a file that says Ruth first and it's got all of her details in it and it's got a whole biography written down it's not like that at all it literally is you have to go searching for a birth, birth date. You have to find a birth certificate. You have to, if someone mentions that a father's called Ludwig, I'll write down Ludwig and go, okay, Ludwig first. And then, do you know, her mother's surname is Altman. It's like, right. It's just, it's a very, very, very slow, methodic process of just getting all those details out. But it works. It's, um, you know what, it, it was nice because I was able to tell a really good story, I think, about her life and, you know, kind of get across the sadness of it there's some really really sad moments in there it's one of those stories where uh, do you know like with Glyndor Michael where it starts off sad and then it just gets sadder and sadder and this was one of those ones where it's kind of starts off well then goes really bad and then it picks up a bit and then it goes bad again then it picks up again and then it goes really sad again you just go oh what a horrible life it's like someone please just give just give the poor girl a chance for god's sake but uh obviously that didn't happen um <coughs> so uh yeah no so all, all of the witness statements are really fascinating but they're they're all scattered everywhere and you've really got to piece through every single detail um and that's the hard. that's the hard thing with with a lot of these witness statements is trying to get an, a sense of who the person is um because although it's it's very useful for people to go you know she was 16 years old and she was brunette with bobbed hair and stuff like that it's very hard very very rarely do people actually talk about someone's ah, uh, what word, their, their personality their way of thinking do you know it's hard to get across that but do you know it was useful here i think because she went through real periods of depression and when you think about her life you can really kind of get into her mindset very quickly do you know 16 year old girl quite young She's got medical problems. Thinks her families are dead. Obviously, at uh, uh, present, I don't know about her brothers. I know that her mum and dad made it to New York, but I haven't been able to find anything so far about her brother and sister, uh, her two brothers. Um, obviously, if I had more time, I would go searching for that, but uh, it doesn't really add to the case. But that's what what I love is um, digging in and finding these details and really finding out who this person is rather than just going, on this date, she met this person in this place. What I try to do with this is really, really find out who this person is, who they are deep down in their soul, what their heart is about, what their dreams are, their goals, their ambitions. So you kind of follow their journey in. So when they do get murdered, you kind of feel sorry for them. Or when, like, hopefully with this, when you see that she meets up with Christie. by the time you meet up at that point you can see that he's the father figure that she kind of needs and that he's got money and uh and you know that he's going to kill her it's interesting with this it's um that because we're only getting this really from Christie's perspective um he said that there were very that they were good friends that they meet up very often the uh tea and coffee uh for tea and that she was in need of money and because he was kind of a father figure he was going to give her some money that was his perspective but it uh whether she actually liked him is unknown whether she trusted him is unknown because don't forget she was kind of quite a shy person quite reserved she didn't really make friends that well she was quite quite insular uh whether she really trusted him we don't know i mean if she did meet him whilst he was on his beat, he would have been wearing his police uniform. So, like the blackout ripper, as I said before, do you know, kind of people trusted the blackout ripper and John Reginald Christie because they were wearing a uniform. It's that kind of thing. You see someone in a uniform, and you go, "Someone I should trust." Policeman, great, perfect. But uh, and he was he was known in the area. He was a married man. Uh, all of the details that we. Uh, I'll go into later on he spends a lot of time talking about his wife. Uh, he's obviously got quite a soft soft softly spoken voice northern as well North, nice, nice uh, kind of Halifax accent uh, probably didn't come across in this episode because I can't really do accents you know that um but yeah he was always buying like I, I've got loads of references I originally I started writing these down. When I find them in the files, and I think, so he met this lady called Barbara, let's say, in this in this cafe, which is not related to a murder, and she's not related to a murder, and you just go, okay, uh, well, what has this got to do with it? But as I was reading it, going through, I was go, ooh, this is quite interesting actually. It gives a perspective on someone who sat, who met with Christie, sat down with him, he bought her cups of tea, listened to her woes, and it was kind of a nice way of hearing what might have happened what might have been nearer the truth of what happened as opposed to christie's perspective so i've used a lot of those as well there's a lot of stories of of uh ladies who went back to christie's flat there's one that hopefully i'll try and get in which was um uh she come round to christie's she uh, was a prostitute um uh Christie had brought her around to the flat christy always denied that he used prostitutes but he did use prostitutes uh he brought her around to the flat um took her into the bedroom he took her into the bedroom not the other way around um he was sitting on the bed with a photo album open with uh loads of pictures of him and his wife in there and he spent a lot of time talking about his wife um a lot of this was kind of a distraction thing because obviously Christie had not just not just mental problems, uh, he had uh, physical problems as well, which we will go to go into in greater depth across the episode. But um I'll leave that till then. Uh anyway, as I said before, um there are loads of books out there. So if you want, don't feel that you're gonna spoil this at all by by watching anything or reading anything. Um if you want, treat yourself, go and watch Ten Rillington Place. Uh, You can either obviously get it on Netflix or something, or someone has very kindly uh, uploaded it to Vimeo. Uh, So it's entirely free. Uh, But it's a really good film, directed by Richard Fleischer, who would later go on to direct another film that I really like, which is The Boston Strangler with Tony Curtis. Not Tony Curtis in a role that you'd expect. He's very good as the Boston Strangler. Um, John Reginald Christie, obviously played by uh, uh, Sir Richard Attenborough, or later Lord Richard Attenborough obviously the director of Gandhi but a fantastic actor in his own right and John Hurt is in there as well um interestingly Richard Fleischer went to uh Richard Attenborough to get him to uh play the John Christie role originally and Christie um Knew the story because obviously he's a Londoner as well. He read the script and he was like, "I can't do this. I I, I can't play such a such a horrible man. I, I just can't do it." Because if 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 you see any interviews with Richard Ambre, he's the sweetest man in the world. Really, is absolute sweet. And he was like, "There's no way I can play anyone so evil as this." And then so they started trying to cast around for the role. And he thought to himself, he thought, because he is an, a fantastic actor. If you've seen him in Bright, play Pinky in Brighton Rock, he is. Oh, God, he can play menacing to a treat. And, yeah, he's a sweet man as well. And he was thinking about it. He was thinking about the role. And he just thought, you know what? This role has to be done properly. And the problem is, if they get the wrong act to do it, they could entirely demolish it. It could be entirely ruined. And you have to play a fine line with this role. So go and watch the film. Go and watch his version of uh, John Reginald Christie uh, in the film Ten Rilling to Place. It's fantastic. But... There won't be any spoilers in there. You, you, there. There's some minor spoilers. You'll see where the story is going. But what I'm trying to do with this is not. not tell you. I'm going to tell you the story anyway. So it makes no difference. But what you'll do is. You'll, say if you watch the film 10 Rillington Place. You will watch the film. And then you'll hear the version I'm doing. Which is about Christie's. Uh, about what really happened. Of which some details in the, in the film. They actually uh, changed to make it more film friendly. There were some details that I was shocked by. I was like, I didn't know that didn't exist. Uh, but there were other, other things that I think it's it's more interesting to see Christy's perspective. So, uh, yeah, uh, I might even put a link online so you, you can uh, enjoy the, the uh, 10 Rillington Place on Vimeo. Or, if you've got it on a, on a DVD like I have, just watch it religiously. It's very good. <laughs> it's very, very good. Anyway, uh, this is going to be an eight-part series here. Uh, not like the... BBC in their three part series pa, pa this is an eight part series or it might be a nine part series so uh i hope you enjoy it um now obviously the pro- problem with witness statements when you're going through them is that quite often people can be wrong and this is what i get with people quite often where they turn around to me and go oh well i know what happened in this case because i'm related to blah 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 or uh i'm friends of the family with such and such and they say well well oh they know it, what happened relatives quite often don't know very much there it's like if you were to turn round to a relative in your family and say what are the dates of birth of everyone in this in our family how many people could get it right so how can they and this is what i i say with this story is even two people in the same room can get can see things in a different way and that, you know, all of our memories are subjective according to how we decide to translate them. So uh, there's lots of witness statements in there that I was going through. and One that I thought was really interesting. Uh, I'll read you a little bit now. I'll read you the pieces. Um, but this was by someone who, who knew, said they knew Ruth first and knew her husband, Carl, first. Now, I'd written this down because... Quite a few people in there had said that she'd been married and that Ruth had been married. But sometime during the 1940s, someone doing something horrible outside, it's making a horrible noise. Um, there's, uh, uh, her husband had been killed on the south coast of England in an air raid. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know she was married. And I went searching. I couldn't find any marriage certificates or anything like that. Couldn't find anything on Carl first. Um I knew that she'd had a baby, but, uh, you know, there's no details on there at all, um, so apparently Carl first with 33, was 33 years old in 1939, um, he was about the same age as her, he was a native Vien- of Vienna, which I thought, okay, that's fantastic, that's where she was from, um, uh, they said that, um, Ruth was a daughter of a Viennese doctor, which kind of made me go, mm, okay, well that's not true, because he was a painter, but maybe they just wrote it down wrong, or maybe they didn't know, uh, and then they said, and then she hoped, uh, sh- uh, she hoped to become a doctor after finishing her nursing course. And I was like, oh, okay, nursing course. Okay, we're back on track. So maybe this is the Ruth, and that they both uh, escaped via Prague, um, then to England, which um, actually, uh, from what we could tell, it, Ruth actually made it through uh, Hamburg, I believe. So that again, I was like, mm, I'm unsure about that. Uh, And then there's all these details about where they stayed in London and all these different places. Um, And then it gets to the end about Carl, that they were living in Maida Vale as well, which is fantastic. She was living in Maida Vale as well. Uh, And that they they say that for a while she worked as a cook slash nurse, which is very possible. And then at the end it says Carl first uh, died in 1947. How can he have died in 1947 if he was meant to have died in the early 1940s on the South Coast? So this was a witness statement from someone who said that they definitely knew Ruth and Carl. But yeah, there's no details to kind of back this up at all. So this is kind of the problem with witness statements is that you can't take them too too directly. You have to kind of take everything with a pinch of salt. Even like, even like as I said before, with like um, Ancestry, like Ancestry.com, things like that you go through it and people go oh this person is definitely this person but um census records are only as good as the person giving them and the person receiving them it's like you would in most days like census, like the, the last census form that we had in 2011 it turns up and there's a big form and basically it says fill in your name and your date and date of birth and what job you do and you hand write it in there or or yeah it was handwritten last time i think um and it's like, but but that document is only as good as the person who's writing it and the person who's translating it at the other end. It could be wrong. How many times do we get our own details wrong, or how many times do we fabricate it? I remember a mate of mine on his on his wedding certificate. It, it was uh, uh, it said occupation, and he. I mean, now he's a very very successful kind of uh, you know, creative director and owner of a, of a of a company and he does you know he uh, directs a lot of stuff and that's what he wanted to do he wanted to be a, a director um but at that time he was working as an administrator in a kind of an old people's home and he was like what do I write do I write filmmaker and I thought like, yeah so did do it do you know you will be a filmmaker one day so do it and he was like oh, I can't do it so he wrote down administrator and it's like ah oh, so so for the rest of his life on his wedding certificate it will say administrator oh so but um that happens doesn't it so sometimes people change details to kind of uh, uh, help themselves. Um, I thought I'd do uh, a little bit here, right? Yes, I thought I'd do a bit here. I thought this was quite interesting. So um, obviously, as I've gone through here, what I've tried to do is to get John Reginald Christie's quotes from because he gave loads of statements and they're all inaccurate and they're all quite vague. So what I've done, as I've said, is always to make them clear for you is to kind of... to cut and paste them together and um dramatize them slightly but keeping them in the real spirit and the time. some of the quotes you've heard in there are direct they're verbatim i haven't changed them i literally have maybe put some punctuation in it just to just to give it a bit of bit of rhythm uh but some of them i've i've kind of uh dramatise them just slightly but they're all still within the spirit of John Christie and in his voice and in his style I've spent a long time trying to find his style and his rhythm uh, but I thought I might read you this, this is just a sample of one of the statements he gave um, spoilers, uh, just after he was arrested, spoilers, yeah, we all know he got arrested anyway it's, it's kind of not really a spoiler <laughs> really, is it um, so um, I'm going to read that to you now if I may I'm not going to read it in his voice. I'm just going to go straight in. Even he gets details wrong here. So uh, a statement of 5th of June, 1953. He said, uh, when I was in the police war reserve, which was when he was a special constable, I met an Austrian girl in a snack bar at the junction of Lancaster Road and Ladbroke Grove. In one of his other statements, he says, uh, Lancaster, he says uh, Latimer Road and Ladbroke Grove, which doesn't have an intersection. See, that's that's the benefit of what I do is I, when I read things, I don't take it as verbatim. I sit down and I go, where's the inter Oh, there is no intersection. Right. But there is an intersection between Lancaster Road and labra Grove. Uh I was an I was off duty at the time. This is Christy again. Uh, and I used to go to the snack snack bar to see if I could find a man who was wanted for theft. Uh uh It was the summer of nineteen forty three. I was living in the ground floor flat of Tenrillington Place and my wife was away in Sheffield. Uh the Austrian girl told me she used to go out with an American soldier and one of them was responsible for the baby she had had previously. Not true, as we know, because it was the the Greek Greek Cypriot man. Um, Although uh, her lodger lady, who she stayed with in Golders Green, uh, uh, what's her name, Elsie Bessie Willis, said that she was back and forth all the time and always going out. Although what she was doing, because she was quite insular and shy, we don't know. Uh, maybe she had got a boyfriend around that point I got friendly with her and we went to 10 Rillington Place uh, and she went to 10 Rillington Place with me two or three times this is how vague he is with stuff one day when this Austrian girl was with me in the flat at 10 Rillington Place she undressed and wanted me to have intercourse with her I got a telegram whilst I was there saying my wife was on her way home the girl wanted us to team up together and go away together somewhere I would not do that. I got on the bed and had sex with her. You see how vague it is. It's, it's like in many of his other statements, he's quite direct. And and there are some details about him where sometimes, I'm trying not to give away too much because there's a lot of contradictions with him as well. Like he'll say one thing, but he'll do the entire opposite. Like he pretends, like he gets very affronted by people if they suggest that he's doing a certain thing. And like he'll be very kind of officious in the way he talks. But on the same side, he's got the various two sides to his whole personality. Uh, Whilst I was having intercourse with her, I strangled strangled her with a piece of rope. Um, I'll make a caveat here. Two statements he gave. uh, One of them said he strangled her with a pair of stockings another one he said he strangled her with a piece of rope uh now because we can't prove what way he was strangled uh for the sake of the narrative i'm using the rope because uh that was used in other cases as well i'm going to keep it keep it kind of consistent rather than as jumping back and forth between stockings and uh and rope although later on he would also use a tie as well just to be really annoying Uh, i remember urine and excretia coming away from her she was completely naked I tried to put on some clothes back on her. Uh, She had a leopard skin coat. I wrapped this around her. I took her from the bedroom into the front room and put her under the floorboards. I had to do this because my wife was coming back. My wife came home in the evening. My brother-in-law, Mr. Waddington, as Henry, uh, came in. Mr. Waddington went back the next day. And during the afternoon, my wife went out. I think she was working at Osram's. Uh, I think that may have been my note there. Uh, While she was out, I pulled the body up from under the floorboards and took it to the outhouse. This is the wash house out back with the... uh, Which is quite brave, really, because this is kind of daytime. And um, other tenants in the flat, like just above him, is Mr Kitchener on the first floor. And there's two other tenants on the second floor as well. And this is daytime. He pulls the body out of the front room, into the communal hallway, into his kitchen, and out into the back garden now what a lot of residents have said is that he would often because the back garden was his and he was like well i'm ground floor flat i've got tenancy here therefore it's my ground therefore it's my garden you don't have access to use it what he would do was lock the door and quite often people would if they need to use the loo they would have to ask for his key to open the back door to go into the back garden to use the toilet or given the fact that the back the the outdoor toilet stunk to high heaven a lot of people didn't A lot of people didn't use it. They'd they'd go elsewhere to use the toilet. Um, Little side note there. Uh, While she was out, I pulled the body up from under the floorboards and took it to the outhouse. Later in the day, I dug a hole in the garden, and in the evening, when it was dark, about 10 o'clock, I put the body down in the hole and covered it quickly with earth. It was the right-hand side of the garden, about halfway along towards the rockery. My wife never knew. I told her I was going to the lavatory. The only lavatory is in the, in the yard. I burnt all the clothing in the garden. The next day I straightened the garden and raked it over. And that, I mean, that that was a Christie statement, but uh, don't forget that is Christie saying something to a policeman and the policeman writing translating it by writing it down. So it's not in a lot of Christie dialect. But uh, there was, the great thing was there was a lot of court transcripts I used And in the court transcripts, because they have to be accurate, they're quite detailed about the verbatim. So like the way Christie would say things like, uh, I don't recall, or I can't recollect, or uh, I can't remember some of the phrases that he would use. But there are many phrases that he'd use, which are very, very typically Christie. So I try to appropriate as many of them as possible. Uh, So I think that's it. Was that good? Did you enjoy that? Oh, that was tiring. Uh, So, we're going to be back next week uh, with part two. Oh, above this jet. That was good. Part two of uh, 10 Rillington Place, which I need to sit down and start writing. (laughs) Um, That one should be interesting as well. Slowly over time, we'll learn more about Christie as we go through. and We'll learn more about his victims and his family and, you know what's going on in his head but it'll be a kind of a slow reveal but yeah i'm looking forward to these episodes i think episode part one was i enjoyed that that was good fun uh, i think the rest of them will be good as well so that was the end of extra mile hope you enjoyed it i'm gonna uh, move the boat and get a cake great love to you all speak to you soon tatty bye bye